Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Today, we are joined by Sophie Blackstad, founder and CEO of Hive Online and a two-time author. Welcome to the show, Sophie. Thanks very much indeed. It's really great to be here. So it's been a while since we all met in Amsterdam, three years ago, if I remember. Much has changed since then. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about Hive Online, your years in some of the world's largest banks, and what have you been up to? Oh, gosh, yeah, that was Money 2020, wasn't it? I, you know, I haven't been back to Money 2020 because I, I spoke there for three years and then we didn't get a single customer, so I stopped. Anyway, um, so yeah, sure, we're, we're building sustainable decentralized finance for the next billion. Um, we've got to focus on smallholder farmers, um, most of whom are in, in Africa. Um, and most of him are living on less than $2 a day um, in fairly remote places. Um, many of them don't have phones. Uh, many of them have very little access to connectivity. Um, but our goal is to help these communities be more productive um, so they can break out of poverty. Um, and typically, because they're so poor, um, they can't afford the things they need to be more productive, like seeds and fertilizer. Um, and shockingly, 70% of African arable land is unused today. Um, so we believe that Africa can become a net exporter of food instead of a net importer as it is today by revitalizing these agricultural sectors. Um, and we're not the only ones, we're working with other people who do. Um, but we're a fintech, we're using blockchain and behavioral nudging, um, but we've configured the platform so that it works partially offline. And only one person in a social group needs to have a phone so everyone can have um, an account, an identity, a wallet and a digital history. Um, we facilitate market access as well, because um, although access to finance is really important, without access to sales, um, it's it's not going to not going to work in the long run. Um, so we have digital crop forecasting um, and then we access credit through digital lending. And so farmers can get the things they need to be successful. Um, and we're in currently in Mozambique, Zambia, Uganda, just going into Nigeria and Kenya, and we're in Lebanon, but that's a long story. Um, but yes, yeah, prior to that, I spent nearly 30 years uh, building international banking systems and businesses. Um, and I realized that banks were never going to be able to support the most disadvantaged people. Um, when I was at Citigroup, I was responsible for infrastructure in 54 countries, including you know, 13 in Africa, Kazakhstan, Russia, places with infrastructure problems. And, and I really got to understand the challenges banks face delivering financial services to rural Africa um, and the lack of infrastructure. Um, and then later on, I was writing a book about the opportunities of fintech um, for development and realized that the book doesn't change anything. Um, you've got to go out and do it. So I quit my job and my legendary expense account and set up Hive Online with my co-founder, Matt. Oh, so, so let's get into that then. Um, the genesis of all this and your experience when, when we looked out on LinkedIn and sort of said, okay, what are we going to talk to Sophie about? What do we not know about her? There's like all of this stuff that you have done in your career and it's been an amazing career and to find like this arc to 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 where you are now so i'm going to get into that a little bit but let's let's go back to the books that you mentioned you have two books the first was why change in 2013 and the second was fintech revolution universal inclusion in the new financial ecosystem which came out in 2018. talk about those and the inspiration behind those two books and 
Did anything transpire between the time that you wrote them that led you to focus on where you are today? Talk about that. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I usually start writing books out of frustration. Um, so funnily enough, I, I wrote Why Change on the train to Manchester because um, I was working for a, a large UK bank um, and I was uh, helping one of their clients become a bank. Um, so I was commuting to Manchester to do that. And the Wi-Fi didn't work. So um, and, and, and the bank I was working for, which I, I will not name, um, but I think you can figure out which one it was, um, would, was not very keen on change. They just wanted to blame people for things that went wrong. And um, I, I, <clears throat> I basically decided to, to put down all the things that I'd done successfully um, at Citigroup previously to take out layers of management and bring services closer to the customer. Um, so if you're a change geek, you might find it interesting, but that was really just me saying, well, actually, this stuff does work and, you know, I've done it um, and I then took it on and successfully did it somewhere else. Um, but FinTech Revolution um, was a few years later on, obviously. Um, and by that time, I'd worked for eight banks. Um, I was at my last bank, Nordea. Um, and that, that book has actually started as how to build a bank because I'd obviously built a lot of banks and thought, you know, might as well write this down. Um, but my co-author um, and I, my co-author Rob Allen and I, realised that the last thing the world needs is, is another bank, as we were writing it. Um, at the time, we were both working at Nordia, the, this, which is a big Nordic bank, and, and both of us were brought in to advise on the whole bank transformation. Rob was payments and I was like everything. Um, and it was a huge job and I got a lot of transformation done and that was great. Um, but we were seeing so much change driven by fintech, especially in Africa. Um, you know, with everything starting from M-Pesa onwards, really. Um, and we knew that blockchain was a huge enabling technology. And I, th I think I'd also got to that point in my career where, you know, I realised that banks were really never going to get out there and never really going to to, to do these different things. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, most of the book is about how, how the tech can transform different aspects of development. Um, but we also talk about what banks need to do to adapt to this new world. You know, the, the ecosystem bank was a, a phrase I coined, which I think is now starting to be used by, you know, banks. But that um, was a long time ago. Um, I think I think the book's aged pretty well. Most of our predictions about CBDCs are coming true. Um, but we didn't see uh, Facebook DM coming. That's um, the, the big tech companies starting to um, to uh, to do financial services is is a development that I think is really, really transformational and really, really worrying as well. So um, so that's something that I've, I've written about since then, but um, but not not in not in uh, fintech revolution. Um, but as I say, a lot of it's still relevant. Um, and that was really sort of the genesis of, of, of Hive Online as well, as I said, because we realized that, you know, writing about it is one thing, but it, it doesn't really make the world change. And um, yeah, so that's how Hive Online came about. <laughs> So Sophie, in, in the book that Brett was just asking you about, and the last one I just read, The Tech Revolution, there's something you wrote in there that stuck with me and said, today's unbanked could be tomorrow's wealth creators with a little bit of creative help from financial service providers if we can design services that help them flourish. Now, earlier in our conversation, you also talked about your experience working with big banks and, you know, similar experiences that Brad and myself both have and seeing what happened inside and out and struggling to understand what is it that we can do and who should be the actors and what role everyone should play. So I want to ask you, 
Has that thinking changed since your book was published? And what are some of the things that need to be done to help us get to that vision of true financial inclusion and wealth creation? Because there's surely a lot of talk, right? But as far as execution ways, um, what, what do you think are some of the things that are missing? So no, that view hasn't changed at all. Um, <clears throat> I think what's changed is the variety of financial services providers that we're now seeing out there um, and the emergence of things like invisible banking and embedded payments. Um, I mean, you're right that the, the traditional providers are not really providing services in, in, in a different way. Um, and to be honest, I'm not sure that they ever will. Um, but I think that there is more of what I call this ecosystem banking going on with alternative service providers like fintechs. Um, and again, that, that there you get to sort of problematic um, areas where, you know, these things can be a great force for good, um, but in the wrong hands, they can also exacerbate the digital divide um, and potentially disrupt economies even. I mean, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm extremely worried about the impact that things like DM and other widely available stable coins could have on developing countries um, if they're available through apps that everyone's got. I mean, in some countries, the number of Internet users is the same as the number of Facebook customers, um, just to frame it. Um, and these, you know, these the availability of something like DM through an app could um, accelerate encroaching dollarization. Um, you know, once once Facebook and other big tech companies start using them, um, and we've already seen economies in the South Pacific who basically have to give up currency sovereignty. Um, and it's nuanced because in some countries like Lebanon, where we also are, um, dollarization can be a solution, but it's really a last recourse if the economy has collapsed already. Um, and I think that, I mean, I know that many of the central bankers in Africa are, are extremely concerned about the potential impact of stable coins and foreign issued CBDCs as well. Um, but the main thing that tech companies need to do um, is to make their services accessible, um, not necessarily, you know, USD denominated coins, which, as I say, carry this risk, but other types of services like, you know, lending and 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 um, savings in particular. Uh, and that's not simple when you have to consider things like, you know, KYC um, and the fact that many people don't have access to technology. It's 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 a it's a it's an interesting path to walk and the most successful are overcoming that and um, overcoming the, the digital device by using tiered risk management which we do too um, so that people can't be left behind and I think where we're unusual or maybe unique is that we combine what's effectively a core banking and lending platform on blockchain with very very low tech so you know low tech users and low literate users can can have accounts and I, and I think the reason you don't see much of that um, it's because there aren't that many people with our sort of background who actually care what happens in developing economies um, or, or see the market opportunity. And I think we'll probably see more of that as, you know, as, as our story gets out and as people see that we can be successful and, and make money at it as well. So let's let's dive a little bit back into that story then with Hive Online. Um, one of the things that we found really interesting about it is how it is dig digitizing transactions, including cash, alongside the entrepreneur's identity to build this trustworthy data connectivity that demonstrates the entrepreneur's reliability to a lender. But I also thought really interesting was you're you're doing this trust building in reverse as well, as lenders are scored on their reliability and how they treat customers. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that technology and why it's important for everyone in the transaction to build that trust up? Um, it's a good question. Um, 
I mean, I, I think it's important because, you know, the customers that we're supporting, the end users, um, need to make informed choices, um, which should be an obvious thing. But I think that there's, um, there's a tendency for educated people to infantilize people without education. Um, and they, you know, they assume that they can't make informed choices. And, and you know, financial literacy is a big issue. Don't get me wrong. Um, <clears throat> but people can use tools if they're designed in the right way. Um, and, you know, we're a great believer in, in building competition into the market and so that people can make informed choices. Um, and, you know, we're always learning more about what works and what doesn't work. And each population is different. Um, I mean, for example, in Uganda, where we're working with some really very poor people, the farmers didn't really understand the concept of a loan. Um, but, you know, what I do see is that they're very fast learners. Um, but then, of course, you've got the other side of the equation, which is that the banks and the financial institutions that aren't motivated to to be assessed on their ethics. Um, you know, if they can get away with high interest rates, they will. And, and they also have a high cost of capital <clears throat> and they, you know, the, the cost of servicing customers is, is very, very high to them. So those high interest rates are not necessarily unethical. Um, although we can bring them down a lot because we can do remote KYC and remote credit risk assessment. Um, but what we're seeing is more and more um, the availability of lower cost of capital for ethical lenders. Um, you know, there's a there's a number of foundations and, um, and other bodies, international bodies as well, that will reduce the cost of capital for people who, who can show that they're lending ethically. Um, so we think that that's actually going to get more popular with the lenders. I hope so anyway. <laughs>
Um, and what we're seeing is that all these big platforms from, you know, Apple to Google to Facebook, obviously, are starting to offer um, fin financial services and therefore become fintechs. Um, and I think that there's a there's a really interesting dynamic there in terms of, you know, you look at the traditional big fintechs, um, you know, the visas, MasterCards, etc. Um, they they don't really have um, supply chain impact, but they also don't have many um, customers in these in these countries. Um, what the, what people like MasterCard are doing, which I think is absolutely great, um, is um, is helping to um, develop technology that that helps poor people in the last mile. Um, and in fact, we've been talking to MasterCard for quite some time about working with them in Kenya. Um, but I think with you, you know, if we look at the macro fintech atmosphere uh, landscape, which includes these big tech companies, there's a lack of awareness about supply chain impact. Um, and uh, I mean, we've all heard of Apple phones being built in China and using coltan from DRC, um, where child mining is endemic, and there's no traceability. Um, but you know, all of these supply chains are are very complex, and and you know, they're horrific but they're not measured by, you know, their ESG reporting. They claim to be green. You know, if you look at Amazon, um, they, they buy carbon credits to offset their data centers, which are run on dirty energy. Um, and they don't report the footprint that their gig, water, gig workers and suppliers are, you know, at all, because they don't regard that as part of their business. But those guys wouldn't be, you know, working in the way they're working and doing the things that they're doing because, you know, if it wasn't for Amazon, um, and then, of course, you've got all the waste and packaging and all that stuff as well. Um, and the yeah, so I mean, in terms of supply chain, that that for us is a huge thing. And it's it's not just the obvious supply chains of you know Coltan and, and Apple iPhones. Um, it's it's actually what's going on to power these business models as well. Um, so we think that that's really really um, potentially a huge huge impact, not just on on people's lives, um, but also on the broader economy. Because of course these things have environmental impacts, which knock, knocks on to the economy. And what we're also seeing is the encouragement of the way that um, I mean I, I have to name the World Bank here as well. The way that um, overseas lending and um, overseas donations work um, is that they encourage things like monoculture. Um, they encourage a race to the bottom in the extractive industries so that these countries are getting very little value about out of foreign investment in their countries um, in terms of taxation and things like that. I mean, if you compare the taxation for um, places like Equatorial Guinea or DRC um, compared to other uh, resource states in other, in other parts of the world, you know, they're getting a fraction of, of what those other states are getting because of these policies. Um, so it's a combination of fintech and, and policy, but I think the fintech is an enabler for, for for those sorts of particularly extractive industries. And then as a macroeconomic perspective, obviously, you've got the impact of dollarization um, and the potential loss of control over fiscal and monetary policy um, in many countries which already have very fragile economies and very shallow capital market structures, if any at all. Um, so I, I see there's a huge threat potential, but also a huge potential for benefit. Um, so, for example, lending and bonds and other financial instruments, which could be traceable all the way through to where the money is going, so you can get full traceability of use of funds and proof of impact, which could overcome some of the barriers to investing in many of these countries. And something I'm very excited about is the opportunity for community social bonds um, to be helicoptered into communities like the ones we're supporting because we can trace where all the money is going. Um, so there is both huge potential negative and potential positive impact, which fintech um, can and in some cases is starting 
um, to facilitate. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think from my perspective, and, and some of the later papers are about this, the, the really important thing is how do we regulate these these industries and these these businesses, which are bigger than nations, um, and are out of control. Um, and, and regulation is is a big challenge because it's bordered. And if you look at you know the SEC, for example, they're going to regulate Facebook in a way that is is relevant for its US customers, um, but they don't care what happens in DRC. Um, they're not motivated to to protect the citizens of, of foreign countries. Um, so the way that regulation is designed has to change. Let's get into the, the technology of that a little bit too, because you know the original premise of Satoshi's papers were around transactions and you know libertarians and crypto bros have sort of globbed onto this as a investment vehicle, it seems. And what's what's really sad about this technology to me is that seven years ago at Santander, you know, we we looked at how it was going to change trade finance, how it was going to change remittance, how it was going to really improve upon business models and then create new ones, not just opportunities for banks, but opportunities for inclusion and you know it's 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 kind of sad to me that a, a big piece of distributed ledger technology whether it's bitcoin as a currency or all of these different investments across different um, coins well as we look at like you said stable coins and central bank digital currencies and we look at dm and other things that are done by private companies isn't there a chance for this technology to be used more like what you're using it for to, to change and improve the state of financial equality globally? Like, how do you see the technology evolving and, and what do you see coming next? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think the key differential um, for, for particularly for developing nations is that they, they need to encourage the development of native denominated currencies, whether that's CBDCs or whether that is stable coins, um, because that's, you know, making your own currency accessible to your citizens is the only way to prevent um, dollarization. Uh, in my view, um, and we're starting to see it happen. I mean, you know, the, I think the Bahamas has done really well with the sand dollar. Okay, they're not one of the least developed countries, but you know, they've they've created an inclusive model that can be accessed through fintechs um, and by ordinary citizens. Um, not quite sure what's going to happen in Nigeria. They're starting out through the banks, which may be a mistake, but we'll see. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it depends. A lot depends on the design, and a lot of the design depends on the political motivation behind it, and that that's quite sad, actually. Um, so I think they can be a massive force for good. Um, I think you know we've we've seen the, you know the the, the great leap in um, in financial inclusion in China and the growing middle class. You know a lot of that can be put down to fintech. Um, and okay, that wasn't CBDCs, but you know the, the same sort of multiplier effects can apply when they're designed right. Um, so I definitely think they can be um, important tools for financial inclusion, but only if they're designed right. Um, but actually, I think the longer term digitizing social and natural capital, um, like we're doing with our tokens and share structures, will actually be a, a, a bigger thing. Um, I mean, something that I love about what we do is that we enable communities to use social capital in a way that can be monetized. Um, and in terms of natural capital, carbon is an obvious one, but, you know, we're, we're digitizing trees and fertilizer. And, you know, if you can start digitizing the barter economy, that can be incredibly powerful as well. Um, so that to me is one of the most exciting things that we're, we're planning to do or we're starting to do. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, th I think these assets are, are just starting to emerge, you know, uh, and, you know, I was around for the dot com boom. I don't know if you were 
that old, but um, I certainly was. And and we saw the same sort of thing, you know, there's a hype, there's a load of people who get excited, they, you know, they, they get on the bandwagon, they, you know, they raise capital for stupid ideas. And then, you know, it all calms down over time, people start realising the practical applications. Um, and then, you know, lo and behold, I, I built the first online bank for UBS back in 2020. And, you know, it, it kind of got normalised after that. So I think what we're starting to see now is, you know, you mentioned the banks using these types of assets. You know, a lot of the global banks are already using what they call cash on ledger because they don't want to call it stable coin. And then and they're just using it for normal stuff like moving money around in, in their organisations. They don't they don't shout about it because they don't want people to think they're using cryptocurrency. Um, but I've seen a lot of that in, in lots of international banks. Um, and, you know, we're starting to see more um, securities being issued on, on blockchain. So what I'm starting to see is, is that sort of normalisation period when, OK, I mean, there's, you know, mad people like me who go out and do it in, in rural Africa and places where people are killing each other. But, you know, on the whole, it's getting normalised and it, it usually starts with the financial industry. You know, insurance is always 10 years behind, obviously. Um, but I, I think it's starting to be normalised now. I wouldn't call you mad people, um, <laughs> although I don't think I know too many people who will be upset and they end up writing books. Um, <laughs> you were certainly probably one of the first ones. Um, and uh, that that was an interesting story. See, I, I know that we we're going to find out more about you that we, we didn't know before. Um, so next time, if we see a third book coming, then we'll know if Sophie's mad. Well, third book's in the works, so you'll see. Oh, OK. All right. Well, if you need more fuse of the fire to get mad, um, let us know. We have tons of stories to share. Uh, so what's next for you, Sophie, and what's next for Hive Online? Um, well, we're, we're actually just, we've just kicked off an investment round because we can see massive growth potential, particularly in Africa. Um, we're, we're getting a lot of what I call inbound demand for our services, and we're still a very small team, and we're, we're actually going to be in more countries than we've got people soon. Um, so my plan is to to inject some capital into the, the, the business and, and grow aggressively over the next couple of years. Um, so, you know, really realise um, many of the things we want to do, like social and natural capital and, and turning on the cash value of our stable coins and things like that. Um, so that's that's the immediate plan. Um, so if any of your listeners would love to invest in us, please let us know. Um, and in general, um, we're, we're, as I said, we're going into Nigeria and Kenya. Those are two two very big um, expansion opportunities for us. Um, and we're also expanding horizontally, um, partnering with more and more organisations in the countries we're already in. Um, so really, you know, growing the business is, is the big focus for the next couple of years. Although, as I said, the, the third book is also in the works. So, um, so that's going to be done. Um, when I get back on planes, I mean, I normally write on transport and I haven't written much in the last couple of years for obvious reasons. Um, and yeah, um, just uh, I'm probably going to uh, grow the business mostly in Kigali, which is where my development team is currently. Um, we get some really, really great people there. Um, and um, yeah, just carry on doing this. <laughs> wow. I remember when we first met you three years ago in Amsterdam, you were talking about Niger. That yeah. was three years ago, and you were right. Much has changed since then. It's amazing. Um, before we wrap, I want to ask you, if there is one message you hope our listeners will noodle on, what would that be? Yeah, I would say there are entrepreneurs everywhere. Um, 
the the reason that you know a woman in Niger or Mozambique um, can't get the capital for her business is not through want of enterprise, not through want of ability. It's through lack of opportunity. Um, we're we're digitizing these these economies and and bringing the distributed economy to these people so that they can you know become the wealth creators that I was talking about. Um, we're just bringing the opportunity, and I think if we can do it, you know, so can other people. All right. I, I, I don't know if I can love you more, but thank you so much for sharing that, Sophie. And um, to everyone, please do uh, check out Sophie Blackout's book online. Uh, get it from your local bookstore if you can. We, we like to support local businesses. Um, and do check out all of her other writings on LinkedIn as well as on Twitter. And thank you so much for joining us, Sophie, today. And thank you all for listening in to another episode of One Vision We'll talk to you all next week. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation.